The lesson this morning is from Romans 8, uh, verses 12 to 17. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you and also with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? uh, so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and humankind. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So remain standing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher just get out of the way. Far less of me, far more of you. That your people gathered this day would be edified and your son Jesus glorified. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Would you be seated please? There is much about the life of Jesus that we don't know. Most notably, a 30-year gap between his birth and his baptism that we know nothing about. Now, when Luke, the gospel writer, consulted eyewitnesses, consulted Mary, Jesus' mother, he likely accumulated a wealth of material that could have filled in that gap for us. And yet he chose but one story. One story. Why this story over every other story? Why would the Holy Spirit 
impress upon him the importance of this one story. What is its value? What does it have to tell us about who Jesus is and why he's come? Now, as we've already seen, Luke weaves his gospel narrative by telling stories that are mirror images of one another. The story of the angel announcing to Zechariah the birth of John the Baptist mirrors the angel's announcement to Mary of the birth of Jesus. And the differences and similarities between these stories revealed to us deep truths. This one story is also a mirror image. A mirror image of Jesus' first resurrection appearance from Luke chapter 24. Both stories happen in Jerusalem, both during Passover. In both, Jesus is lost, dead for three days, and found again. And when found, a pointed question is asked, why are you seeking? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house, must be delivered over, must die, must rise again. In both stories, the women who hear these words treasure them, remember them. In all these ways and more, this one story and Jesus' first resurrection appearance are mirror images. Luke is telling us The Holy Spirit is telling us that this story, this one story above every other story, tells us something about Jesus' completed work, foreshadows the risen life that we're invited into. So what about this story foreshadows that completed work, foreshadows the risen life we're invited into? Well, our text opens in a very typical Jewish scene, the yearly pilgrimage up to Jerusalem for Passover. This year, Jesus goes with his parents. Has he gone before? Likely so. But Luke here wants us to know that he goes up to Jerusalem as a 12-year-old boy. This is an incredibly significant year in the life of a Jewish child, for at 13, he comes into adulthood. He would become a son of the law, bar mitzvah, taking upon himself the personal responsibility for living as a member of the covenant community. Now, as a brief aside, it is this ancient Jewish practice that informs the Anglican approach to baptism and confirmation. And I take this aside deliberately because Little T is a fairly unique place. And one of its unique qualities is that hardly anyone who calls Little T home comes from an Anglican background. And as a result, we have a broad range of theological commitments when it comes to baptism. And as a team, and we talked about this recently, we can see how people come faithfully to Scripture and affirm believers' baptism, and we can see how people come faithfully to Scripture and affirm infant baptism. And so practically, we've sought over the years to navigate that breadth of conviction by giving space for all of those convictions to be expressed, giving expression to child dedication, infant baptism, believer's baptism. The reality is we're still located in that Anglican tradition of infant baptism followed by confirmation. And that tradition is rooted in the Jewish practice we see in this text. 
sons of believing parents circumcised on the eighth day, signifying that they're a part of the covenant community by adoption and grace. And then at 13, that child would take on personal responsibility for being a covenant member in a bar or bat mitzvah. And so too, in our Anglican tradition, baptism is extended to children of believing parents, signifying that God's invitation into the kingdom is by adoption and grace. And then later in life, that child will take on personal responsibility to live out those baptismal promises in confirmation. And I share this not to convince anyone here, but rather to simply shed light on the tradition that you now find yourself within. Now here in our text at 12, Jesus is being prepared for bar mitzvah, prepared to take on personal responsibility to be a member of the covenant community. And his father, Joseph, would have been integral in that preparation pouring into him time and wisdom, mentoring him in life, in work, and in faith. This Passover above every other Passover, Jesus, here is the significance of the lamb, the foods we eat, the temple we come to. The feast ends. They pack up and they head for home. But Jesus stayed behind and in Luke's construction of that sentence, that's the only main verb. Jesus stayed behind. That's what he wants us to know above everything else. Jesus stayed behind and his parents didn't notice. Wow, we might think. Those are some negligent parents. Not only did they leave him behind, but it took them a whole day to notice that he wasn't there. It's not all that surprising. This society is far more communal than we are. The whole village was responsible for raising the children. The whole village would travel together to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem. And it was often the case that the women and younger children would leave first as they're slower, and the men and the older children would leave later. So they might have noticed, but thought, eh, probably with Joseph, with Mary, with his cousins, and then when they all get together for dinner that night, no Jesus. It takes them a whole day to get back to Jerusalem. And then on the third day, they find him in the temple with the teachers. These are no ordinary teachers. This is the Sanhedrin. These are the top religious scholars of the day. And at 12, Jesus is holding his own. Not only is he listening, he's asking questions. And in this culture, Jewish teachers taught by asking questions. They would ask questions that would lead their listeners to discover the truth for themselves. And so Jesus is teaching the teachers. And when his parents find him, they are astounded by it, understandably so. But then that astonishment gives way to a rather more natural parental response. Now, I like most parents have lost my kids, often momentarily in a crowded room. But those are moments of utter panic. And when you find them again, there's immediate relief followed quickly by anger. Why did you walk off? 
right? And that anger is born of love. You're wanting to impress upon the child the seriousness of what has or could have happened. And Mary's response carries such a twinge of that anger. And she pulls out a card that parents still pull out on the regular. Your father and I, in an honor and shame culture, in a culture where family relationships were to be held above everything else, in a year that his father has been specifically pouring into him, this line has a bit of a punch to it. Your father and I. And Jesus' response follows her emphasis. You're right, Mom. This is a year to honor, to respect, to be mentored by my father. So why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is the only story that Luke gives us from a 30-year gap, a story that mirrors his first resurrection appearance, a story that contains his first recorded words. In so, so many ways, this one phrase is a summary of what Jesus has come to do, foreshadowing the risen life into which he invites us. Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Now, his parents can't comprehend what he's on about. Of course not, right? No one called God Father. I read this week of a German theologian who did an exhaustive search of historical faith claims, as German theologians are apt to do, and he came to the confident conclusion that Jesus was the first person in human history to ever call God Father. And as we enter more into the Gospel of Luke, we will come to see that one of the primary reasons Jesus has come is to draw us into relationship with his Father as our Father. Now I know that there will be some here in this room for whom such language is difficult to hear, to use. Our earthly fathers absent, distant, abusive. And out of loving care for those who have such experiences, in some Christian traditions, the father language for God gets jettisoned. But I believe in so doing, we lose more than we gain. If your relationship with your earthly father has been difficult at best, I grieve with you, for you, and affirm that our God is a holy father. A holy other father. Wholly different than every single one of our earthly fathers. A perfect father. And in Jesus, we're invited to know this God as father. Not only that, but to know him as Abba, father. Abba was essentially baby talk. Mama, Dada, Abba. But Jesus is inviting us into a relationship with his father, one of childlike trust. For many, many years, this truth for me was simply one of intellectual assent. I believed it in my head, but not in my heart. And then a trip to Israel with a friend. 
we stayed at a hotel that was run by Orthodox Jews. And as a result, there were different times for the men and the women to go down to the pool, but young children could go with either parent. We were lying in the deck chairs, watching the young kids run around the pool deck, smiles on their faces, gleefully crying out, Abba, Abba, as they leapt off the pool edge into their father's waiting arms. And in that moment, I believe by the work of the Spirit, the truth of God as Abba came home to my heart. It had been a particularly difficult season for me. My future lay in front of me, unknown and terrifying. But through that scene that was played out on the pool deck, I sensed God say, Tim, I am your father, your Abba. I know you, I love you, I care for you. I'm with you in whatever the future holds. And like those children on the pool deck, just leap out into the unknown. I've got you. This is what Jesus invites us into when he says, Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? And if this is the risen life that Jesus invites us into, it means that in him we have a new identity. A new identity as a son, a son of a heavenly father. Now, you might think that I'm being incredibly insensitive by not using gender-inclusive language here. But when the scriptures call us, in Jesus, sons, it was language that was radically egalitarian, radically inclusive, and utterly transformative. You see, in Jesus' culture, the son... The firstborn meant that you were an heir, an heir of everything that your father owned, land, title, possessions, business. All of it was yours. Women had no inheritance rights, none whatsoever. And so when the biblical writers speak to followers of Jesus, women and men, and say, you are a son in Jesus, it was to say you regardless of your gender, you regardless of your birth order, you regardless of your past, are an heir. An heir to everything that your heavenly Father has. An heir to a glorious future. In Jesus, we have a new identity. One that supersedes every other identity. An identity that heals the damaging impact of other identities. You see, in Jesus' day, identity was based on familial, cultural, societal expectations. And Mary seeks to leverage that in her angry corrective. Your father and I, this is what it means to be a son, Jesus, and you're not being a son. No, mom. I must be in my father's house. My identity as a son of the living God takes precedent here. Now in Western culture, we throw off identity based on familial, societal, cultural expectations, knowing the damage such identities have done. And we build our identity on performance, achievement, accomplishment. 
just as damaging, but in different ways. We may build our identity in work, career, and as a result, we're incredibly driven. We're constantly overworking. We're sacrificing relationships along the way, and despair sits in when work success or work itself eludes us. We may build an identity in being good at a certain task or skill or talent. The praise of others confers to us our sense of worth. We're crushed when we don't get it and become petty and jealous when others get the praise we believe is our due. We may build our identity in our kids, impacting how we raise them. If we can't stand the thought of losing their approval, we'll have the tendency to be permissive and under-disciplined. Or if we see our kids as an extension of ourselves reflecting who we are, we'll have a tendency to over-discipline and a desire to control how others see us. We may build our identity in relationships, the approval, the acceptance of others, pleasing others, being a people-pleaser. And then we're decimated by criticism or trapped by a fear of losing that relationship. We'll stay silent when we should be confronting damaging behavior. But an identity rooted in Jesus as beloved son of a heavenly father can heal all of that. For with this identity, the lack of praise for our giftedness, the lack of acceptance in that relationship, the sting of criticism will no longer deal that crushing blow. Oh, it'll hurt, but it won't crush us. Because our Heavenly Father's voice over us is, You're beloved. I delight in you. I'm pleased with you. With this identity, we may find freedom from overwork, free our relationships from defining us, and free our kids to be themselves. My first job out of seminary was as a youth pastor, and my desire was to foster the youth to lead their own ministry. And as a result, I would mentor them in leading the teaching and the formation. I remember one Sunday I asked one of the youth, we'll call her Sarah, to give a reflection on how her identity as a child of God impacted her. And Sarah began by telling us about herself. I'm overweight, she said. I get teased constantly about it. So much so that I try and avoid being around people. I stay home. I rarely go out. It's become so hard that I've even thought of ending my own life. She paused. There were about 50 teenagers in the room. You could hear a pin drop as they waited for what she might say next. But I've come to see, she continued, that in Jesus I'm God's beloved daughter, precious, beautiful in his sight. And his words over me have become much louder than the teasing. And she went on to describe how her identity in Jesus had transformed her view of herself and transformed her relationships. This is what Jesus invites us into when he says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? 
Now, some translations will render that, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And while it isn't the best translation, it does capture the full truth of this statement. For to be in the father's house was to be about the father's business. As my son's age, as they carry on through high school, a central question begins to take shape. What do you want to be when you grow up? How do you want to make a living? Well, in Jesus' day, that, an- that question would have been answered long before they were born. As sons, they would do what their father did. Daughters would do what their mother did. To be in the father's house was to be about the father's business. In Jesus, as a child of the living God, we are called to be about the father's business. And what is that business? As we progress through Luke, we'll see that it is nothing less than the renewal of the cosmos. Jesus' loving rule being expressed over every aspect of life. Our world shot through with his goodness, justice, peace, and love. But I want us to notice here what Jesus does immediately after saying this to his mom. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Does he say this and then go out teaching, healing, confronting injustice? No. He goes home. He lives as a son. He lives a typical Jewish life for the next 18 years. It's incredibly instructive. For sometimes we think that the life of faith is an over and above. The work of the gospel is an out there work. Over and above our regular work. But no, it is lived out exactly where we are. In the work we've been given to do. In the relationships we've been invited to foster. In the communities we're already invested in. Being about the Father's work in those places will require prayerful intentionality and dependence. But that is where the Father's work is primarily found. This is what Jesus invites us into when he says, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Into that 30-year gap, Luke gives us one story. The Holy Spirit leads him to record one story. A story that is a mirror image of his first resurrection appearance, foreshadowing his completed work, foreshadowing the risen life he invites us into. Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? In Jesus, we're invited into relationship with God as Abba, Father. In Jesus, we're invited to pick up our primary identity as sons of God. In Jesus, we're invited to invest in the Father's work. This is the risen life that Jesus invites us into. Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? And so let us join Jesus there in our Father's house. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. 
Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services. 